They can have a profound impact on the way we live. And we ask, Lord, that as we talk about rest, that you'd make our rest in you seem so beautiful and delightful that everything else that this world offers in competition would seem pale and bankrupt. Transform our hearts, God, and speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So picture this with me. Um, there is a couple, and they're consumed by their work. So maybe the wife says, my husband, he just works all the time. That's all he does. He has no time for me. And the wife says, oh, my husband, you know, and the husband says, my wife, he's, she's just taking care of the kids. That's all she has in mind. I am not anywhere near her line of vision. That's all she cares about. That's it consumes her life. Okay. Um, picture the opposite as well. So there's, there's a couple, and they're consumed by their pleasure, by their leisure activities. So the husband is, is accusing his wife of saying, oh, she's always surfing the net, surfing the web, and doing, looking for TV dramas all day long. That's what she does. It consumes her life. And the wife says about the husband, he comes home and he sits on the couch like a couch potato, watches TV all day long, eats potato chips. He doesn't have time for me. Yeah. Okay. Or maybe they say of their kids, he, he, my son, he's just playing video games all day long. That's all he thinks about. That's all he wants to do. Or maybe about my daughter. She's on social networking websites all day long. She's on Twitter, Facebook. She seems to have a very robust social life, but she has, they have, she has no social life with us. So what is the problem in all of these pictures? What's at the root of all these pictures? Can you see yourself in any of these? And that's, at the root of all these problems is, is a lack of an appropriate rhythm between work and rest. Right? And in, in other words, this, it's a misuse of our time, of our choices, and of our activities in our, in our daily living. And that means this has to do with the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day. Right? On it you shall not do any work. It's from Exodus 20. But wait, aren't the Old Testament's laws no longer valid anymore? Didn't Christ fulfill all the Old Testament laws so that we don't have to do this? What does it mean that Christ fulfilled the laws? So in order to answer all these questions, we're going to turn to Matthew 5, 17 to 20. So turn with me there to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. I'll read it for us. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus begins by saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Right? This assumes a form of discourse. So don't think this. So that means he's already assuming and that there are people who think this that Jesus came to abolish the law and the prophets. And this is um, particularly important in the Gospel of Matthew because it's intended for a Jewish audience, primarily Jewish audience. And at the time of Jesus, a lot of the Christians who followers of Jesus were being accused of rejecting the Jewish uh, traditions, of rejecting the history and, and, and their, their, their true religion and then going after something, uh, heresy, something that's not true. And so Matthew is using his Gospel to defend the gospel, to defend the truth of Christ, saying, no, I'm not abandoning the historic faith. Instead, I'm t- telling you how you to truly believe in God, how to do it better. Um, and so Jesus is assuming that there's some people who are accusing him of dismissing the laws and saying not keeping them. And he's saying, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. And law or the prophets, they refer, it's, it's an idiom, it's a shorthand for the whole Old, scripture, the Old Testament scripture. Law and prophets are the, the longest sections of the Old Testament scriptures. So referring to law and the prophets, he's talking about the whole scriptures. So Jesus is pretty emphatic, right? He says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he says, for truly I say to you, verse 18, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So until heaven and earth pass away, and heaven refers to the skies here and, and the earth, so that we, we st- the world as we know it. And the world as we know it still exists, so that means the law still hasn't passed, right? right? The all hasn't been accomplished yet, right? So that's where uh, Jesus is getting here. And what are the laws in the Old Testament? The Jews thought that they had 613 laws. And if you, they counted them all in the Old Testament scriptures. And 248 stipulations, things that you have to do, and they Corresponded, it corresponded with the 200, 248 body parts they thought that people had. And then 365 prohibitions, things that you're not supposed to do. And that corresponds to every day in a year. So they thought that with all your body, you're supposed to obey every day of the year. That's how Jews understood the law, 613 commandments in the law. And one of those such commandments was the one about the Sabbath, Exodus 20.10. He says, The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Now, this is a pretty general commandment, though, isn't it? Like, what does it mean, don't work? What does it mean to, to rest? Um, and they, because it's a general commandment, the Jews talked about this for a long time, discussed it, and actually a general commandment became a very specific one. And let me give you one example of how this happens. So, for example, let's say you guys are in a house. This is a wall, and this is a house. Let's say this is the door, and I'm a beggar. I'm a poor man. And I come, and this is the Sabbath day. And I come, and I put my hand in, inside the, in the door, and then the, the you guys who's in the house drop food onto my hand. And I, or actually, no, let's say you left the food on the ground. And then I pick it up, and I bring it back. I have worked. That's work. But it's in the same way, if the householder, if you guys extended your hand and then dropped food onto my hands and then brought your hand back in, then you would have been guilty of work. 
Okay, but catch, this is the catch. Now, if I put the hand in, and then instead of me grabbing the food, you guys drop the food on my hand, and then I brought it back out, then neither of us worked. Okay, <laughs> that's pretty specific, isn't it? Okay, so it, that's how detailed they got in these commandments. Okay, that's the Sabbath. Okay, then that is work. This is not. Okay, so is Jesus saying that we have to keep it like that? I mean, is that what he's stipulating here? Like you have to keep it to every minutia of the law, saying that not an iota, not a dot will pass from it? I don't think so because in order to figure that out, we need to learn what an iota or a dot means. An iota is a Greek transliteration of the smallest Aramaic letter. Aramaic is the language that Jesus would have spoken. So in using, referring to it, he's saying that not even the smallest letter is going to pass from the law. So even the smallest commandments are not going to pass from the law. And dot refers to a serif. And I have a little slide to show you what that, what that is. It's, it's that Hebrew letters calf and bait, they look very similar, right, at the top. It's just a little, little mark, a tiny mark that distinguishes the two. Same thing with the resh and the dalit. It's, it's almost like the difference between an O and a Q in English or an F and an E or an I and a J. It gets confused all the time because they look so similar. So he's saying that, that dot's not going to pass from the law, right? So that's important. So then if that's the case, then is he really saying, he's, is he referring to the every letter, this literal letter of the scriptures, or what is he referring to? And I think he's referring to the commandments, right? And because he's using the law to stand for the commandments, right? It's a rhetorical device. He's, when he says referring to letters, he's not saying these letters are actually never going to pass away. He's saying these commandments are not going to pass away from the law. It's just like we usually have shorthand for things. You know, we say White House when we're looking for the U.S. You know, executive, you know, um, office and we refer to Hollywood as opposed to the U.S. cinematic you know, industry. You know, it's just kind of, we have shorthands. It's kind of like that. He's referring to the letters as, as the, referring to the commands instead of referring to the actual letters. So from this, it actually really does sound like he's endorsing every minutia of the law, but that's why we have to look at the context. And if you look at the context, you'll remember last week we just covered the, the Beatitudes, right? And before the after the Beatitudes, the salt and light, right? And so that was setting up Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So he's teaching about what it means to be Christian. And then now he's talking about how he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. And the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to spend talking about how to truly keep the law. So he goes into a series of what, he, what people call antitheses. He's saying, you thought this, but actually it's this. So he say, you thought that you um, were not supposed to just commit adultery, but actually if you looked at someone lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in his heart. He was in the same thing. You thought you just was not allowed to murder. No, but if you're just angry with your brother, it's, almost, it's as if you've already committed murder. So he's going around and expounding the Old Testament laws and making them way harder, putting the standards way up here. And he's saying, no, you think you're just keeping the literal letter of the law, that's all you need to do. But you need to, what you need to really do is keep the spirit of the law. Right? It's the spirit of the law that you need to keep, more importantly, than the letter of the law. So Jesus, then that context tells us here that Jesus is not saying you need to keep every letter of the law. Not, you don't have to follow the law to the T, but you need to follow the spirit of the law to its intended purpose. What's the intended purpose of the law? So if that's the case, and let's go back to the question of the Sabbath, right, since that's our topic for today. What is the spirit of the Sabbath then? What does it mean to keep its intended purpose as opposed to just keeping it as a letter, as, as, as a law, legalistically? So let's go back to Exodus 20. I'm going to have it displayed for you so you can uh, look at that. And I'm going to just focus on verse 11 there. <clears throat> 
It says, In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So what's the rationale in that command, right? So you're supposed to keep the Sabbath, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath, because six days God made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. So the spirit of the Sabbath, according to this passage then, is God created everything. Creation is complete, and he said that it is good. And what is created as good is to be enjoyed, right? And God's creation is complete. You don't have to any, add anything to it. You're not the creator. You're just the creature. You, you're not the center of the universe. God is. So don't live as if everything revolved around you, as if you had to constantly work to make things happen. God is the creator. He is sovereign over it. And that is the basis for our recreation is that we can, you, we can recreate because there's goodness in creation and we can enjoy what God has given us and it's complete. And that's not the only place the commandment is given. There's another place. It's in Deuteronomy 5. That's also uh, up on the screen. And let me focus on verse 15. There the rationale is a little different. He says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. This is, so first one was a mandate based on creation. This is a mandate based on God's redemption. You're not a slave anymore, right? So don't work like you're a slave. Don't work like you have, that's the only thing you can do. That's all you have to do because that's what slaves do. They have no choice but to work. But you're not a slave. God's freed you, so don't work like you're a slave. You've been redeemed. You've been freed. And enjoy that freedom. And this freedom, then, is the basis for our rest. So creation and redemption, these two things together is the, it gives us the spirit of the Sabbath. And the spirit of the Sabbath is that the creation and redemption are the basis for our rest and recreation. And that's why Jesus is constantly getting into trouble with the Pharisees for not keeping the law, right? If you go a few chapters later in Matthew 12, like he's, he's this. Uh, disciples are caught e- eating some, you know, picking some heads of grain and eating them on the Sabbath day, and then the Pharisees criticize them for it. And then Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, and then the Pharisees are indignant about it. They say, okay, this guy's had withered hand for how many years? And you couldn't wait just one day? Why don't you just do it tomorrow? Why would you have to do it today? <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's their rationale, right? I mean, so it's the Sabbath day. Why didn't you keep it holy? And, and Jesus, I think, is doing it intentionally, I think, because he, it, it's, it's a teaching opportunity as well for the Pharisees. And, and this is what he says in Matthew 12, 8. He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And in a parallel passage that recounts the same event in Mark 2, he says this, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the spirit of Sabbath. So in keeping the Sabbath, like that example of the householder and the beggar, the Jews would have totally enslaved themselves to the Sabbath. That's what's happened. So instead of freeing them, instead of helping them to live in the freedom that God has given them, instead of helping them to live in the goodness of creation that God has endowed them with, they are enslaving themselves to it. And Jesus is saying, no, the, spirit, the Sabbath was, you're not made for the Sabbath. It's made for you. It's for your enjoyment. It's for your reward. It's, for, it's to help you. And the and Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So if that's the case, then what would a day set aside for the Sabbath look like if we're trying to keep, stay true to the spirit of the Sabbath? What do you actually do during a Sabbath, during your rest? 
I think this is critical to think about. So first, rest. When we think about rest, we obviously understand it as refraining from work, right? And that's going to look different for everybody because people have different types of work, right? For example, if, if you have an office job and you sit in the same position all week in front of a computer, then it's probably not going to be restful for you to go to your couch, sit in front of your computer all day long when you're resting, right? Maybe it's something, you go outside, you garden. Maybe you go for a run. Maybe you go snowshoeing. Maybe you go, you know, skiing and enjoy the grandeur of God's creation. Something more active, maybe. But on the other hand, if you're um, kind of doing strenuous work, let's say you're a construction worker outside or you're a landscaper, right, then rest is probably not going to be doing more physical labor, right? It's not going to be doing garden work. It's more going to be relaxing. Maybe it's relaxing on your favorite chair and having coffee brewed just to your taste and reading your favorite novel or meditating on the Psalms. You know, what, maybe that's, that's, that's more restful for you. Um, so rest is, like, rest is objectively important. However, the way you do it, what you do for rest is, is subjective. It depends on what you do. It depends on your background, what you have. But whatever it is, don't succumb to the tyranny of time. Right? Our lives are run by the clock. Right? It's like we're herded animals. It's like, oh, time for this. Let's go. Oh, time for this. We got to do this. Don't succumb to that because that, that takes the enjoyment out of everything. It takes the enjoyment out of rest. So think about this. If you're eating a meal, sharing a meal with your family, and everybody's looking at the clock and thinking about what they're going to do right afterward or maybe even doing something while they're eating, that's not a very enjoyable meal, that you're not really present, right? But maybe on the Sabbath day, you, when you have a meal together, you're not looking at the clock. Nobody's looking at the clock. It's a well-prepared, well-presented meal, and you converse, and you're present with each other. And this is, and Sabbath is, I mean, it has, personally speaking, it has done amazing things for me, right? And what I generally take a day of rest after Sunday, from Sunday sundown to Monday sundown. And so after church, and, and when, when I enter into it, it, it adds, it's, I, I, have, I have a ritual. I kind of like, tend to like rituals. You guys don't have to do this. This is not in the scripture at all. Um, but it just helps me to distinguish the day of, like, working from rest. It just helps me to enter into kind of a, a sacred, I guess, space. Is I just light three candles, and I pray in the name of the Father who created all creation to be good and to be enjoyed, in the name of the Son who redeemed me to be free, so that if the work is finished, I don't have to earn my salvation. And then I pray in the name of the Spirit who sustains me now, who is working even when I'm not working. And I pray, God, help me to enter into this rest. And when I do that, I could even, I, it's almost as if I could feel my heartbeat slow down. And then I'm more present to everything that I do. Hannah looks more beautiful because I'm more present. And when I go sit down to read a book on a couch, it's more comfortable. And then this ray of sunlight comes in, and it just it puts new light into my world. It's not, just, it's not just shining on my face. Usually I wouldn't even notice it, but during my Sabbath, I do. And that gives me the rhythm and the, for the rest of the week. And so it's, it, could really, it could really help. It's, then what about recreation? So that's, if that's what it means to rest, what does it mean to recreate? As a church, I think we need a, more, we need a stronger theology of fun, a stronger theology of play. Okay, youth are just perking up right here. <laughs> and, and I think the reason for that... <laughs> Um, is because Christians are oftentimes perceived as dull people, right? They're kind of like dreary, oh, like discipline, discipline. This is right, this is wrong, this is how I have to live. That's how Christians are often perceived. But it's not. We're the true Christians. We have more enjoyment than any of you will ever know, right? 
I mean, that's God made pleasure. God made enjoyment. We know how, how to enjoy it truly and fully and wholly. And, and that's why Cornelius Plantinga, who is a Christian scholar, says this. The sin of pride, it's the sin of pride that turns so much of human life gray with earnestness. In Ecclesiastes 3.4, it tells us there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. There's time for diversion, for recreation, for fun. And in 1 Timothy 6.17, this is probably the most important uh, verse to, to show us that recreation is actually a value in the scriptures. It said, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And the word enjoy here is a strong word that denotes almost a sensual enjoyment. So much so that in another passage in Hebrews 11.25, it is referred to uh, the enjoyment of sin. The same word, enjoy, is used, used of sin. So here he's saying this sensual word, enjoy, enjoy it. If God's given you riches, don't make that the end of your life. Don't make that your God, but enjoy it. Right? It's, God's, it's God's, what God has given you to enjoy so this tells us that legalistic asceticism is wrong, saying that, oh, all of these things are bad. I'm only going to do what is serious and what I think is holy. That's, that's, not, that's not a Christian attitude. And uh, I think, let me give you one illustration to drive this home, hopefully. Uh, I don't, how many of you guys have read the book Screwtape Letters? Um, it's, or seen the play, yeah. And the Screwtape Letters is a book written by C.S. Lewis. And basically, it's a conversation between two devils. It's really interesting. It gets into the psychology of all of this. And, and one devil is, is named um, uh, Wormwood, and he's kind of like a junior devil. And he's, he's new to the job, and he's assigned a man that he's supposed to drive to hell. And he's like, this is your task. This is what you're supposed to do. And he has an uncle named Screwtape who's kind of his advisor. So whenever he does something wrong, Uncle, uncle Screwtape comes and advises Wormwood. Okay, you didn't do that right. So, so this is one example where, where the senior devil comes and says, you definitely messed up right here. And he says, first, you allowed the patient, this is us, human being, <laughs> to read a book he really enjoyed. Because he enjoyed it, not in order to make clever remarks about it to his new friends. In the second place, you allowed him to walk down to the old mill and have tea there. Walk through a country he really likes and take in alone. In other words, you allowed him two real positive pleasures. Were you so ignorant as not to see the danger of this? You were trying to damn your patient by the world, that is by palming off vanity, bustle, irony, and expensive tedium as pleasures. How can you have failed to see that a real pleasure was the last thing you ought to have let him meet? Didn't you foresee that it would just kill, by contrast, all the trumpery which you have been so laboriously teaching him to value? And that the sort of pleasure which the book and the walk gave him was the most dangerous of all? Listen to this here. That it would peel off from his sensibility the kind of crust you have been forming on it and make him feel that he was coming home, recovering himself. And then he goes on to say, it doesn't matter how trivial such fondness is, such, such pleasures are. I grant you there's nothing of virtue in them but there is a sort of innocence and humility and self-forgiveness about them that I distrust. Right? That's what rest and recreation is. There, there is a self-forgetfulness about them. 
there's a humility about them of enjoying what God has given us to enjoy, of being true to yourself. That's how God's created you. And to, to live into that reality and enjoying that, there's something about that that gives you a sense of coming home, of recovery, of refreshing yourself and rejuvenating yourself and being true to who God has made you to be. So what is good recreation? Right? Of course, it doesn't violate God's commandments. Right? Sin is, is, it might be fun to you, but it's not good recreation. Um, a sin... But a leisure activity that is not bad in and of itself can also become corrupted because of our sinfulness. And how can you tell when this happens? This is three things that you should remember when you, you notice when your desires, when your pleasures start to become sinful. First, it becomes obsessive. Right? You're always thinking about it. You're fantasizing about it. You're always thinking about it. It's an, it just becomes an obsession more than just a simple pleasure. And then secondly, it becomes impulsive. It's no longer intentional. You don't do it. You don't think about it. You just do it. It's, you just do it. That's, that's a sign that it's being corrupted. Thirdly, it's compulsive. You can't help but do it. It's, it's a pleasure that you used to enjoy, but the more you do it, the less pleasure you get from it and the less control you have of doing it. Your life spirals out of control. The pleasure starts to take mastery over you. That's, those are short signs that even an, innocent, even an innocent pleasure, like maybe collecting stamps, for example, if it becomes one of those, then it's becoming sinful, right? Um, so those are things. So if, with those things in mind, what's, what are some real pleasures, some innocent pleasures, pure pleasures that you just flat out enjoy? Think about that. That's a good question for us to think about. What are real simple pleasures that you really enjoy, flat out enjoy? And, and it's, the difference is stark, right? I mean, and the, the bad pleasure, it's kind of like, imagine on a hot summer day, you're really, really thirsty, and you drink maybe Monster or Arizona or Coke, right? It's not going to quench your thirst. It's going to make you thirsty again. It's going to keep having to drink it. Nothing quenches your thirst like ice-cold water on a hot summer day. That's the difference. The real pleasure is going to give you that, and it's actually going to take less and less of it in the future the more you do it to give you that same enjoyment. But bad pleasures, corrupted pleasures, are going to give you less and less pleasure the more you do it. That's a good way to, that's a good bottom line way to tell. And what are, what are some innocent pleasures in your life that tend to get corrupted? This is a way you can apply this. It could be, it could be purely innocent, but it's being corrupt. It has a tendency to get sour. I compiled a list here that could potentially be like this for some of you, uh, some of us too, is browsing catalogs maybe, checking your email or the weather maybe compulsively. Playing games, doing puzzles, background music all the time, radio, TV, chatty phone calls, text messaging, recreational shopping, maybe snacks between meals, films, or anything that becomes an obsessive habit. I'm not listing these because they're wrong. There's nothing inherently bad about them. But as soon as they become obsessive, impulsive, compulsive, being corrupted, and it's time for us to take a break, to unplug, and to, to rest. And we have to have balance about all this, because as I'm talking about rest, that doesn't mean you go and say, oh, I'm just going to rest all day long. You know, this is what it's like to be in heaven. This is what I'm going to do all week. No, we can't do that, because the fourth commandment tells us to rest, but it also tells us to work. It says, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And both of those are imperatives. Remember the Sabbath day and six days you shall work. 
So you're supposed to work. We are made to work. We're created to work. And that's why for men especially, as soon as after they retire, the studies show that actually three to four years after they retire, they die. And that's because it's tied to our identity. That's God created us to, to work. And that's what can still work in me. <laughs> yeah. So what I'm teaching you is so withdrawing from a video game, withdrawing to a video game, for example, all day to shirk your Christian responsibility, to evade life and work, that's not good recreation. Because recreation is supposed to be a diversion. It's to refresh you, to rejuvenate you. It's not supposed to be an evasion. It's not supposed to help you avoid life. That's just, that's just, not, that, that's just avoiding your uh, personal responsibility and Christian responsibility. But that doesn't mean that work is the main thing and that rest is just a little thing to help you work. That's not it either. Sometimes people think of rest, Sabbath, as just like a power nap. It's just functional. You do it only so that you can get back into the grind. That's not what rest is either. Because the way uh, the Jews understood it in the Jewish calendar, a day does not begin at sundown. I mean, it does not end at sundown, but it begins at sundown, according to the Jewish calendar. Isn't that cool? So the day begins at sundown because God's working even when you're not working. And when you wake up, you participate in what God's already doing. That's a whole different concept, isn't it? And in the same way, in the Hebrew week, in the Jewish week, there's no weekend when you just wind down. The, the Sabbath, which usually happens from uh, Friday or Friday to Saturday evening, that's, or Saturday evening to Sunday evening, that's, um, that's the climactic day of the week. It doesn't exist just so that you, you can get you can back to work. Rest is something valued. In fact, in Hebrews 4, 9 to 10, it tells us, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. A true Sabbath is eternal. Right? And this means that eternity in heaven with God is going to be characterized by rest. So rest is not just an auxiliary thing that you need for work. Rest is actually going to be an ultimate thing. And that doesn't mean work is not good either because work is going to be part of it. Work was not, is not a result of the fall. God called us to, to care for and to cultivate the earth before the fall. However, the toil in work is a part of the fall. So when God comes, when Jesus comes and restores all things, in heaven it's going to be a beautiful integration of work and rest. Work without toil. Rest and it's just it's gonna be in pure harmony. That's that's what it's gonna be. And so when we take a Sabbath, then today, in this in this temporally, not eternal Sabbath, but temporal Sabbath, we live into that reality. We make that try to make that eternity a part of our daily life. Like it's a shadow of what is to come. And that's what we do. And hopefully by this point you you're convinced that rest and recreation are important for a Christian life, but you might still have questions because how can we rest if creation, the goodness in creation is the basis for our recreation? How can we recreate if, because of sin, all creation and even us who are made in God's image are corrupted? Our desires are corrupted. How can we have a true Sabbath when we're, when we're so marred by sin? How can we do it without making it legalistic? Another question is, if, if we are enslaved to sin in life, some of us, and there's sin in our lives that we still struggle with even though we know Jesus Christ and we have, in, we have received his redemption into our lives. And what Jesus tells us as, as 
that the chapter goes on is if you have looked at a lust, woman lustfully, you have already committed adultery with her in his heart. If you have been angry at a brother, you've already committed murder in your heart. That's the case, then I'm an adulterer and a murderer by Jesus' definition. If that's the case, how am I, of all people, going to enjoy redemption of freedom that we have when I feel still tied and shackled by sin? It's a good question. And this leads us to the most important verse in this whole passage. The whole structure of this passage hinges on verse 17. It says, Do not, it says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does it mean that Jesus fulfills the law? This structure that he came to fulfill, that implies purpose. This is why Jesus came, to fulfill the law. And to fulfill is, doesn't mean the same thing as to do or to keep because they have different words for that in Greek and they would have used it if that's what that meant, that, that what they meant to say. It says to fulfill. And to fulfill is a Christological term. It has to do with Christ, uniquely to do with Christ because in Matthew, no one else fulfills anything in the Gospel of Matthew except for John the Baptist on one occasion. Everything else, it's Christ fulfilling something. Only Christ fulfills anything in the Gospel. And if that's the case, then what Christ is the end. He's the intended. He brings the law to their full fruition, to its intended purpose. And that's what it says in Romans 10.4, Christ is the end or the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the definitive revelation of the true meaning and purpose of the law. He fulfills all righteousness through his atoning death and resurrection. And this is why sometimes Christians are accused of, of being hypocritical because we criticize certain moral acts, immoral acts, and then, but then we don't keep everything in the Old Testament. And there's a reason for that, right? There's three types of laws in the Old Testament. There's ceremonial law, there's civil law, and there's moral law, right? And ceremonial law is the one that has to do with the temple. It's rituals and the things that you have to do for, to keep ritual purity. And Jesus f- fulfilled that because we don't longer have a physical temple, but Jesus is the new temple. And we are all, through the Holy Spirit, made in the temples of God. That's been fulfilled, so ceremonial laws are no longer valid. We don't keep those. But civil law has to do with Israel. It governs the nation of Israel. It has to do with the relationship that people have with each other. But Jesus came and established a new Israel, people that are not Israel by physical descent but by, spiritual, by faith, through spiritual descent. Right? And because of that, we no longer keep those civil laws either. And the third, those are the ones that we still keep, the moral law, it's like the Ten Commandments. Those are the laws that we still keep. But Jesus tells us, even though, even of those, the true meaning of the law, not the legalistic kind like the Sabbath where you know, the beggar and the householder, but the true meaning. What's his purpose? What's his spirit? He tells us how to keep that. The first time the law was given, Moses ascended a mountain to receive the Ten Commandments from God. This time, Jesus ascends a mountain, the Sermon on the Mount, that's what's, and he receives a second law, a better law. And this one helps you keep not just the letter of the law, but also the spirit of the law. And so Jesus is fully expounding that. So then, our observance of the Sabbath is not motivated by fear of punishment or, or legalism. Oh, I have to do this because it's in the Old Testament. Because, but, because, but because of joy of divine grace. Because of what God's already done for us. Because of what Christ has already done for us in fulfilling the law on our behalf. Because he knew we couldn't fulfill the moral law perfectly. So that's our motivation. That's what keeps the Sabbath from being legalistic. Right? And as modern imperfect creation, people, in, people still struggling with sin, we can't observe the Sabbath. 
but as the new creation. People who have been set free from sin, we can observe the Sabbath. So we enter into an eternal Sabbath by trusting in Jesus through him. And we, in the same way, we enter into a temporal Sabbath in, in, in time, also through Christ. Reflect on the gospel. Let that motivate you. Let that transform your heart. And let that define what those innocent pleasures are. That's how we enter into rest and recreation. And this is really important because if you look at secular counseling books, they'll tell you, oh, you got to manage your time better like this. Oh, you got to have more. You need, this is how you're going to get balanced rest and recreation. You know, you can, you can solve it that way in terms of physical sense. But if, unless you have the gospel to transform your heart, to want the things that God wants, to want the things that bring glory to God, both your work and your rest, both your labor and your leisure are, are going to be restless. That's the condition of the fall. There is no rest apart from God. So then, because Christ has fulfilled the law, and since this true Sabbath is eternal rest in God's salvation, does this mean that we don't have to keep a literal Sabbath? This is the final a literal day of Sabbath. And I do think that there's some flexibility in this. However, I do think that we should keep some time, regular interval of time, as to, to rest and recreate. And the reason why I think that is this. We're supposed to live a life of worship as Christians, aren't we? We're supposed to be living sacrifices according to the book of Hebrews. But does that mean because our whole life is meant to be worshipped that we don't set aside time for Sunday worship? It doesn't, right? And the same thing, we're supposed to, as Christians, pray without ceasing. We're supposed to pray all the time. Does that mean that you should never set aside time for prayer? I don't think so, because unless you set aside time for prayer, I can guarantee you will not be praying without ceasing, right? You can't. Right? So it's, it's impossible. You could keep the letter of the law without keeping the spirit of the law, but you can't keep the spirit of the law without keeping the letter of the law. Does that make sense? Keeping the spirit of the law is harder to do. And that's why I think you do need some regular time for it. But don't enslave yourself to it. Consider it a gift from God, right? There's a renowned Jewish scholar named Abram Heschel. He once said this, more than the Jews have kept the Sabbath, the Sabbath has kept the Jews. Right? The rest and recreation, it's for us. We're not made for them, but it's made for us to enjoy so we can live more fully into the reality of God, the goodness of creation of, and of God's redemption in us. So let me challenge you this morning to think about those questions that I asked you earlier. Okay, what are some of the pleasures that tend to get corrupted in my life, even though there's nothing in and bad in and of itself? And, and what are some innocent pleasures that I can really enjoy for, to the glory of God and so that I can be refreshed in him? And so let me challenge you to restore the rhythm of rest and recreation in your life. Instead of working, 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 and, and fooling yourself that your most fundamental identity is found in what you do for Christ and not in what Christ has already done for you, Rest in what God has done, what Christ has done. So restore the rhythm of rest and recreation in your life instead of working, 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 and trying to be someone that our society tells you you have to be. Be true to yourself, to how God made you, to live into that reality, rest in it. So restore the rhythm of rest and recreation in your life instead of working, 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 and fooling yourself that the world will stop running if it weren't for you. It will. God's sovereign over it, so you can rest. And restore, finally, the rhythm of rest and recreation in your life 
instead of fooling yourself that you can earn your salvation, doing all these good things that it depends on you. It doesn't because Christ has already won it for us. That's the basis of our rest. That's the gospel. Remember what Christ said as he died on the cross. It is finished. That's why we can rest and recreate. Because of the goodness with which God has endowed his creation, we can recreate. And because of the good news with which God has graced his new creation, we can rest. So restore the rhythm of rest and recreation in your life. Let's pray. Thank you for your son, Lord. Thank you that it is finished. Thank you that you have won our salvation and redemption. Thank you that you are even now restoring in us your image. Grant us, Lord, a healthy rhythm of work and rest to your glory. and for our encouragement and upbuilding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.